You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And as always, today is no exception. We're going to be diving into the past, looking at thinkers of the past. Uh, I've got a Peanuts comic strip here that I use when I was writing this blog post with Sally and Charlotte Brown writing, or Sally writing, Charlotte Brown's before she's writing Church History. When we about church history, we have to go back to the very beginning. Our pastor was born in 1930. Unfortunately, a lot of us do look at church history that way. We look and we say, well, you know, we're here today, and Jesus came, and yeah, maybe we can put in the Reformation in there somewhere, but there's just this straight line from here to there, and we don't really need to worry about all that stuff in the middle. Go to your average... Christian day and ask them to name a great Christian thinker and you might have a hard time. Ask them to name a church father, you probably have an even harder time. That's why I'm glad to have on here someone from Reasons to Believe, one of our favorite organizations. That's Dr. Ken Sampras, who was on here before talking about God among sages and about aliens and the resurrection. Um, he is a, a philosopher and a theologian. He has a great passion to help people understand the reasonableness and relevance of Christianity's truth claims. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe and the author of several books, including Christian Endgame, Seven Truths That Change the World, and God Among Sages. Dr. Sampras, welcome back to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hello there, Nick. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Mm-hmm. Doing good today. And it, for anyone who's looking at the calendar, knowing about today, it is my princess's birthday today, so I'm wishing her a happy birthday. And why am I doing the show then? Because she's got someone who's doing a good makeup job on her, and she's promised me I'm going to be very surprised, which, I mean, okay, it's her birthday, and I'm getting the gift. That's nice. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the great things about marriage, so mm-hmm. congratulations. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Sampras, if my audience doesn't know much about you and who you are, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, well, I kind of grew up in what I would call, Nick, a, a nominal Catholic family. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I was baptized in Long Beach, California at a parish called St. Athanasius Catholic Church. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the beginning of my interest in church history. When I, uh, it was in my college years, mm-hmm. I began to take Christianity more seriously I became an evangelical Protestant uh, and began studying philosophy and theology. One of the people that had a big influence on me was Walter Martin, who was the Mm -hmm. original answer man. And uh, uh, 
After a number of years of attending his class, I began working at the Christian Research Institute as a, as a researcher. And um, I've taught philosophy, taught world religions. I've been working at Reasons to Believe for about 22 years. And um, so that's a little bit of a summary of my background in Christian uh, apologetics and uh, uh, I'm the non-scientist on the RTB Scholar team, so I'm kind of the oddball there. But I kind of bring philosophy and theology to bear on the on the issues of science and faith. We had on here our last week someone who I you might have worked with at re, at a CRI, and I also used to work at CRI, but long after you are you were gone from there, but. Uh, Rob Bowman was on here last week, and he spoke very highly of the book we're talking about today. Yes, uh, Rob and I have been friends more than 30 years. We worked together closely at the Christian Research Institute, and uh, yeah, I think very highly of Rob and his work. He is a very capable scholar. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us a bit also about reasons to believe where it is and how you got to be there as a non-scientist. Yeah, uh, Reasons to Believe is a science, faith, apologetic organization. We like to think of it as a think tank. Uh, we kind of bring to bear a orthodox conservative view of scripture with uh, hopefully the very best so science. Uh, Hugh Ross is the founder and the president of the organization. We have a scholar team of about a half a dozen scholars. And uh, so we have a, a biochemist, we have a astrophysicist, an astronomer, we have uh, an expert in the area of uh, viruses and uh, uh, another physicist. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm the non-scientist and uh, what I try to help do is kind of bring uh, the positions of philosophy and theology and, and see how they bear in terms of, of science faith issues. So I've been at RTB a long time and uh, we certainly uh, certainly live at a time in which there are lots of questions about how Christianity relates to science. Okay, so the book is Classical Christian Thinkers. What motivated you to write this book? Yes, uh, that's a good question, and uh, the answer to the question is, uh, Nick, that I I often feel that uh, I often feel that evangelicals uh, not only do they at times not know what they believe and why they believe it, but I think there's a deeper question, and that is a lot of times evangelicals don't know how we have come to believe what we believe. Uh, I think church history and historical theology is very important because it tells us how the doctrine of the Trinity was framed. I believe that the Trinity is evidenced in Scripture, but as the doctrine was uh, uh, presented, it, it was attacked, it was criticized, it had to be formulated, it had to be defended. The same is true for the Incarnation, various other Christian doctrines. So in some respects, uh, I think the other branches of Christendom, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, they often talk a lot more about church history. They talk about the church fathers. Mm -hmm. And 
I hope that this book will be a small contribution to helping my evangelical friends maybe appreciate church history and historical theology. You know, my wife is seriously considering joining the Eastern Orthodox Church, and while I still disagree with it, I never say but there does seem to be an interest in church history. I mean, I don't agree with everything said about history, but at least she seems to be paying more attention to history now. Yeah, and I, I have had friends who have uh, left evangelical Protestantism and either became Catholic or Orthodox, and a, a lot of times they tell me it's because they feel that those branches are more anchored in history or have a deeper connection. Mm -hmm. So my attempt is to try to help educate my evangelical friends and maybe encourage them to appreciate uh, what role church history plays in our faith. Now, there's two groups of people that would be skeptical about the idea of classical Christian thinkers. I'm going to go to the first group that would be skeptical, and that's, well, skeptics. You look and say, Christianity and thinking is an oxymoron. How can you have classical Christian thinkers? Yeah, that's a, that is an important question. And what I would say, Nick, is that when it comes to the areas, very intellectual areas like science, like logic, like philosophy. The fact of the matter is that uh, so many of the, the greatest intellects uh, were Christians themselves. Um, I'll give you a, an, an example here. In a, in a textbook that I used to teach logic, it's entitled A Concise Introduction to Logic by the author Patrick Hurley. He has, uh, he mentions in his book, 10 eminent logicians. These are people that made deep contributions to the study of logic, critical thinking, rationality. Six of them were Christians. The same is true in the area of science. The vast majority of the, the great uh, founding fathers of science uh, were distinctly Christian. In philosophy, um, I personally think Thomas Aquinas may have been the greatest mind Western civilization ever produced. Here, 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 here. I mean, he may be challenged by people like St. Augustine, uh, Anselm, many, many others that are in that kind of camp. And so I think it's unfortunate that many skeptics are not aware of the intellectual firepower that has existed within Christendom. And my attempt is to is to take nine of these thinkers and introduce them. And I think maybe the way that I thought would be helpful would was to uh, introduce church history and historical theology by introducing biographies, getting people to know the people, if you will. Yeah. Now, the other group that would look at this with skepticism would sadly be your main audience, Christians themselves, who would look and say... Christians aren't supposed to be thinkers. Yeah, and I think that that is very disconcerting. I think that, unfortunately, there has always been uh, elements within Christendom that are what I would call anti-intellectual. Uh, sometimes people feel that thinking gets in the way of your faith. Sometimes people think uh, that spirituality is, is, is not to be... Uh, it's not to include kind of the cerebral intellectual areas, but I think that position is not only wrong, I think it's harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, we're called to love God with our entire being, with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And uh, the Bible talks about intellectual virtues. 
Paul says, test all things, hold on to that which is good in 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, Luke says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they they checked sources. They looked at the Old Testament to see if what Paul, the Apostle Paul was saying is true. The Apostle Paul talks in Romans 12, 2 about uh, the need for the, the enlightenment of the mind, uh, dedicating itself to Christ. So, sure, there are moral virtues like telling the truth, keeping your, your marriage vows, um, not stealing, but there are also intellectual virtues. And uh, I, 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 that's another reason I wrote the book. I want to challenge people to realize that uh, uh, Christianity not only works in a practical and spiritual way, it works because it is true, and it's true in the area of the intellect. Mm -hmm. So let's start talking about the book. Something that I do like about the book also is that you don't really have to go through straight through. You can if you want to. That's what I did. But a church small group could get together and say, hey, let's start with, say, C.S. Lewis. And they could just read the C.S. Lewis chapter and they'd get enough, wouldn't they? I think so. Uh, I tried to write the book very much in a way that it would be really kind of a beginner's guide. I tried to keep the end notes and the technical areas of scholarship uh, in, in a limited way, of course, hopefully not uh, causing any kind of uh, misrepresentation. But uh, again, uh, Nick, I think that a great way of teaching church history is by introducing these are these are extraordinary people. They're interesting. They're engaging people, and uh, you definitely could start in the beginning with Irenaeus and work your all all the way through to C.S. Lewis. But you don't have to. If you're more interested in the Church Fathers, you can start with one of them. If you are passionate about the Reformation, I talk about Luther and Calvin. But if you like science, maybe you want to begin with Pascal. And then, of course, C.S. Lewis is extraordinarily popular. So I do think it's a book you could read one thinker, you know, at one reading setting. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping a lot of people will do that in their churches and maybe their uh, book clubs. Mm -hmm. So let's start going through. And something else we should point out, no one from the Bible is in this book because you want to introduce people ones outside the Bible, right? That's correct. Um, you know, Christians, uh, particularly evangelical Christians, they, they know a lot about Paul and, and John and Peter and James. Uh, but these are these are great Christian thinkers that are in church history. They're, they're after the apostolic era. So I, I start very early and I, I intentionally tried to select individuals that would cover the whole scope of Christian history. So th these are definitely people that are, that are after the time of the apostles, mm -hmm. after the time in which scripture was completed. Mm -hmm. So let's start with Irenaeus, the first one on the list. So who exactly was he? Yeah, Irenaeus is a very important early church father. His dates are right around 130 to 202 AD. So Irenaeus is important because he comes only one generation after the apostles. Uh, Irenaeus knew Polycarp, and Polycarp knew the apostle John. So this, this is very early in Christian history. 
And Irenaeus plays a very important role because when the apostles died, uh, Christianity was passed on to the, the coming leaders, the new young leaders of the church. They needed somebody who could stand up for the faith, explain the faith, defend the faith. And Irenaeus, I think, is one of the most sophisticated Christian thinkers of, of the second century. He is critical because he takes on one of the biggest challenges to Christianity, a heresy called Gnosticism. So he is a, a leader of the church, he is an ecclesiastical figure, but also a theologian and an apologist. Mm -hmm. So what was this whole Gnosticism thing he was standing up against? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Gnosticism was kind of a combination of, uh, of Greek thought and uh, other types of philosophy. And it, it began even in the time of the apostles. The apostles talk about a group called the Docetists. The doseo is a Greek word that means seem. And they argued that Jesus didn't have a body. Jesus wasn't really a fully human being. He just seemed to leave footprints on the sand near the Sea of Galilee. Well, docetism gradually developed into a, a broader view called Gnosticism. Uh, gnosis is the Greek word, one of the Greek words for knowledge. And the Gnostics believed that salvation did not come through faith in the life, death, and resurrection. It came through a secret esoteric knowledge that only the insiders had. It also had kind of a metaphysical dualism. The Gnostics believed that, that matter was evil and spirit was good. So salvation is the, the soul or the spirit escaping the body. And what was so devastating about this heresy is, think of what Gnosticism would do to historic Christianity. If matter is evil, what would that do to creation? Mm -hmm. What would it do to the incarnation where God becomes man in Jesus Christ? How about the crucifixion? Uh, so this was a devastating heresy, and Irenaeus took it on full force. He uh, wrote a book called uh, Against Heresies, in which he critiqued Gnosticism, uh, explained what they believe, uh, responded to it philosophically, biblically, theologically. So Irenaeus is one of the most important early Christians in representing a Trinitarian faith, and defending against the challenges of Gnosticism. You know, if we're talking about this also on a practical level, which I think needs to be done, there was a time several months ago, I, I was part of a marriage group at the time, and it's since disbanded since then, sadly, but I was part of this group, and the new mayor posed on behalf of a, a woman who'd contacted her, and I'm going to try and phrase this the best I can, and yes, even she can be euphemist and said, guys, can you just a Tell me why it is that you all find certain parts of your woman's body attractive. And the first answer I gave was, because I believe in the resurrection. Because mm. Jesus rose from the dead, the body matters. It's not just an add-on. It's something good God created. And that means we treat our bodies very differently. And it means I treat her body very differently. That's a, that's a great point, Nick. Um... You know, in Genesis, it says that God created a good world, uh, a world, surely the world is stained by sin, but it's a good world. Uh, God created us 
and we're a union of our immaterial and our material nature, our soul, our body. Um, God likes bodies. Jesus took upon human flesh. That tells you that not only is there a goodness in humanity, a dignity in humanity, but God does care about uh, the physical world and, and bodies. And, uh, you know, our human body is a critical part of who we are. And Gnosticism was a deep challenge to creation, incarnation, crucifixion, and you mentioned the resurrection, where Jesus's body is a a physical body. It is a it is a material bodily resurrection from the dead. Something I think we can also lose sight of easily in all this is nowadays, if you and I have questions about Christianity. We can go to our Christian bookstores or turn on Christian podcasting like that and get people who've done years of research into this beforehand and answer the questions. And if we want to see, does the Bible teach the Trinity, where we already have this idea of Trinity, and we can go and look up all these different verses, read them and say, yeah, I think the Bible teaches the Trinity. Irenaeus didn't have any of that. That, that's a that's a very important point. Irenaeus is an individual that is very very early on, and so he of course was influenced by the scriptures. He's influenced by uh, those who who came before him, but he's very early on, and and there isn't a, a fully formed theological presentation of the Trinity or the Incarnation. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really impressed with Irenaeus. He is very advanced. He's very sophisticated. He's talking in Trinitarian terms before the, the great councils that hammered out these types of issues. And and so I, I think he plays a, a, a very, very critical role in presenting and defending historic Christianity. Yeah, it's just so easy for us to stop and take things for granted and think, well, this is all obvious. No, Irenaeus had to be one of the main people that was helping to form the doctrine that we have today. If it wasn't for Irenaeus, who knows what would have been. That's that's very much true. Uh, I think that's why it's so important for Christians to have an appreciation of the, the period we call the Church Fathers. These these were thinkers who, who really sketched out. They, they were the shapers of Christian orthodoxy, if you will, and they play a critical role because they're in that period between uh, the apostolic era and what will later become, you know, the Middle Ages and the Reformation, etc. And Irenaeus had lots of important beliefs besides critiquing Gnosticism. Uh, he came up with a theory of suffering that later people called, uh, you know, uh, a, a sense of soul development. Um, he thought that suffering shaped the character of individuals, and he had a view of the uh, uh, of the atonement, where he talked about Jesus coming into the world and doing all the things right that Adam did wrong, kind of a satisfaction theory. Mm -hmm. So he is a major uh, theologian, a major apologist, and 
And of all things, the man who was Bishop of Lyon before him was brutally martyred. I mean, imagine taking a job where the previous person was was executed because of his Christian faith. Irenaeus was Irenic. Uh, I think he practiced the golden rule of apologetics. He's very careful to try to get Gnosticism right. But he was also a man of courage. And, and all of us need those kind of characteristics today. I was going to say something also about the whole martyrdom thing. I'm so glad you brought it up because in our day and age, we can take it for granted so much. My wife and I are planning on going to church tomorrow, and we're not going to be in one thing. Where let's, let's pray no one cures us on the way. And we don't have to hide away. Our church funeral right from public. Anyone can see it when they drive by. Irenaeus didn't have that luxury. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, a very early period of church history, and he lives at a time where there's a lot of persecution, and where, where Christianity is not the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, that, that's a reason why I, I wrote the book, Nick. I think that, uh, I, I think that, you know, these individuals can serve as mentors, as thinkers, as encouragers. And when I read Irenaeus, um, in some ways I'm encouraged and I'm strengthened to, to continue in my role as a theologian, as an apologist, and to have the kind of character, courageous but ironic character that a person like Irenaeus had. Mm-hmm. So let's move forward. Ben, Tom, start talking about Athanasius, some, and I, I yep. think you probably have some affinity for him, considering how you uh, grew up in the church, don't you? Right? I do. I, I have uh, uh, personally, Nick. I I kind of think my ministry is kind of an extension of that of of Athanasius. Uh, Athanasius is is uh, born about two ninety six and dies in in the uh, uh, 370s. Uh, I think Athanasius is one of the most important uh, church fathers. Um, Athanasius attended the Council of Nicaea, which was the great council of 325, where, where the early Christian community dealt with the heresy of Arianism. Uh, Athanasius didn't have a vote. He was there with his bishop, the Bishop of Alexandria, Alexander. Uh, but Athanasius is the great defender of the deity of Christ. He is the defender of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Athanasius plays a very, very significant role because there was a heresy brewing in the early church. Uh, Constantine had kind of confirmed Christianity as the religion of the uh, Roman Empire. But there was a lot of tension, both politically and theologically, because this individual named Arius of Alexandria was teaching that, uh, that Jesus was not fully divine, fully equal with the Father. Uh, rather, the Father had created the Son, and then through the Son created all other things. Arianism is very similar to the Christology of a modern group called Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. And so it's a denial of the Trinity, a denial of the deity of Christ, a denial of the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. And Athanasius locked horns with the Arians. And uh, I think it's through his 
personal ministry that that the church was spared from one again one of the great heresies so i think it's important for people to appreciate that these early church fathers they really had to take on some very difficult and challenging beliefs in order to present and defend historic Christianity. If anyone wants to know what Athanasius, how much he, opposition he had to deal with, the saying of a time was Athanasius contra mundum, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, in fact, at the Catholic Church that I was baptized at on the front door, it said Athanasius contra mundum, Latin, Athanasius against the world. And the great story is that uh, there was a time where many of the bishops were leaning in the Arian direction against the Nicene Orthodoxy, and some of the bishops kind of taunted uh, Athanasius. They said, Athanasius, don't you know the whole world is against you? Don't you know that, the, that Christendom is leaning in the direction of Arius? And Athanasius responded very calmly and very courageously, and he says, is the whole world against Athanasius? Then it is Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. Is exiled five times for a total of 17 years. But Nick, you've talked with Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. Athanasius took the Arian theology seriously. He knew his Bible. He presented exegetical and biblical arguments to critique Arianism. I, I think Athanasius's book on the Incarnation is really one of the great masterpieces of the period of the Church Fathers. Yeah, we've just moved to a new apartment complex within the past three months, so that means one of the things I'm looking forward to is, oh good, maybe the, maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will start visiting us again, because I'm pretty sure our last house on the map would have this big red X right in the center and say, <laughs> don't go there. <laughs> Yeah, I have been talking with Jehovah's Witnesses uh, for more than 30 years, mm -hmm. and I've had them in my living room. I've uh, talked with, uh, you know, the individuals who come with the Awake magazine and uh, the Gospel of the Watchtower. And in my book, I take some of uh, I take some of Athanasius's arguments where he critiqued Arianism. And Nick, I've used those in my door-to-door -door discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. So, now Athanasius, also when he got his start, he really was a young one at the time too, wasn't he? He was a young man. Um, he grew up in uh, kind of a Christian home. He was Egyptian. Some interesting things about Athanasius, he was small in stature. He was dark complected as an Egyptian man, you, you would think would be. And, uh, you know, he started very modestly, but he became a very important church leader, ecclesiastical leader. In fact, uh, Athanasius um, is one of the early Christians to, to name the 27 books of the biblical canon. Uh, he, he also had ideas of theosis, this idea of uh, deification or divinization that is a very popular view in, in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. So Athanasius was a very, very significant theologian and Christian thinker. Hi, this is Mike Lacona. I've had the privilege of being on the Deeper Waters podcast with Nick Peters several times over the past few years. 
Nick is one of the finest interviewers on the internet today. He's well-read and asks the type of questions that bring valuable insights for his listeners. So if you want to get great information from top-notch scholars in a concise package, the Deeper Waters Podcast with Nick Peters is where you need to be. I was going to ask something about that whole thing about uh, the New Testament, but you've already beat me to it now. And also, Athanasius had to use a skill that many of us probably need to learn more often. That's using the culture around him well, because when Arius was out there doing his work, he taught songs to teach Arianism to the people. And Athanasius had to learn how to counter that. Yeah, I, I think what's very intriguing about Athanasius is that during these periods of exile, where he's kind of kicked out of his uh, ecclesiastical area, he, he still has to respond to the people in the churches. And he spends that time thinking about ways of combating Arianism, thinking about passages and arguments that can be used, uh, thinking about responding to the, to the popularity of, of Arianism. And I find that to be very inspiring. I, I find it I find Athanasius to be such a such a courageous, heroic, and smart person. Um, you know these heresies, whether it's Gnosticism with Ari- with Irenaeus or uh, Arianism with Athanasius, these these are very difficult theological doctrines, uh, and 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 they're still around today. I mean. Uh, uh, Gnosticism, we see it in the Da Vinci Code. We, we, we see it uh, uh, in the book The Secret that is often presented by uh, people like Oprah Winfrey. But, but we see also Arianism in Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians and Unitarianism. So you're right, he was able to kind of combat it. And uh, he was always thinking, how can I defend the Christian faith and how can I present careful arguments to critique uh, this devastating heresy? Yeah, and he's one of the main form- formulas, <clears throat> people who formulated the doctrines that we have today. There's even a, a whole creed named after him. I don't think there's any other one individual I can think of in Christianity who has an entire creed named after him. That's a very important point, Nick. I, I think that, uh, and, and it, you know, we recite the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday. It is a longer creed. It's longer than the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. It has a detailed discussion of the Trinity. But, you know, Athanasius is kind of uh, a universal Christian voice. Uh, among Orthodox Christians, he is uh, viewed as a saint. He, they view him as a, a critical part of the shaping of Orthodox theology. Roman Catholics also view him as a saint. Uh, again, the church I was baptized in was named after him. And even Protestants, who are sometimes uh, critical of church fathers, uh, I would say that for probably most informed Protestant theologians, Athanasius is uh, their favorite theologian. And so he may be the most popular Christian thinker in all, in all of Christendom. Mm. 
So let's move on to another Christian thinker. It's next one is who's also no doubt very popular. One I think you have a particular affinity for, and that's Saint Augustine. Yes, yeah, Saint Augustine is uh, is born in three fifty four, and he dies in four thirty A.D. So Augustine is born right as the Roman Empire is starting to to come apart. Uh, 410, Rome was sacked by the Visigoths, and Augustine is born in a little city in North Africa called Tagaste. His mom is a Christian, his dad is a pagan. Um, Augustine kind of rebels against the spiritual formation that his mom provides for him. There, there are stories in his autobiography called The Confessions, which Augustine as a teenager, uh, says that him and his friends, they uh, would steal pears from, from uh, a, a, a farm there, and not because they were hungry, not because they needed them, but because they wanted to do something illicit. Mm -hmm. And so Augustine is the great story of a person who lived uh, a, a rebellious life, uh, he became a very famous rhetorician, moved to uh, Constantinople, moved to Rome, moved to Milan, finally had a, a very famous conversion. And so I would say that uh, Augustine may be the most influential Christian thinker, especially in the Western world. Augustine has influenced Protestants probably as much as he has Roman Catholics. A lot of people might be surprised at the whole thing about the pairs. Because he's said actually that he thinks that was the worst thing he ever did. And the reason is, me and us can think of many wrong things a person could do. A person could kill someone, maybe because they want revenge or just of some sort. They could watch pornography because they love sex and they want to see the opposite sex like that. They could have an affair outside of marriage, any number of things. In at least when they're doing those things to make there's something that they're warning that's somewhat good in there. But Augustine said, No, I did evil this time just to do evil. Yeah, this is uh in his book The Confessions, which uh really kind of created a new genre uh, uh, called the autobiography. In the ancient world, people didn't write biographies. They certainly didn't write spiritual biographies. But in this book, especially early on in the book, uh, and confessions can mean confession of his sin, and as you mentioned, he has a lot to confess in terms of sin. could also be understood as a confession of a newfound faith mm -hmm. and a confession to the glory of God. But Augustine talks about the idea of misusing our our affections. Um, you know, there are many th good things in life. Uh, you mentioned sexuality. Sex is a good thing. Mm -hmm. People misuse it. Food is a good thing, but people eat too much of it or any number of things. Augustine talks about, you know, as a young man, he wanted to do something that was illegal, was illicit. And what I love about reading the Confessions is the honesty of Augustine and the great thing that God's grace transformed him from 
one of the great sinners into one of the great saints. And, you know, as a Christian, I want to grow in my life. I want to grow in sanctification. I want to grow in my love of God, my love for my family, my love for my neighbor. Uh, Augustine is just an extraordinary person who, who moves from a life of sin, uh, a life of, you know, trying to find uh, advancement, wanting to be famous, wanting to be influential, uh, to becoming one of the truly great theologians, philosophers, and apologists of Christianity. And by the way, Nick, I should also mention that many scholars believe that Augustine is the most prolific author in all of antiquity. He writes more than any other Latin writer, more than any other Greek writer. He wrote more than five million words. So there's a powerful point that the most prolific author in the entire ancient world was one of the great Christian scholars and thinkers. What about Origen? What did Andrew Rome say? Has anyone read all that Origen wrote? Well, Origen is a very prolific author as well, uh, and and certainly one of the brilliant minds. But his writing isn't nearly as extensive of, as even Saint Augustine. There are other people like Basil, and there are a good number of both Greek and Latin authors. But but Augustine extends even further, uh, and we see that in the writings, not only the Confessions, but we see it in the City of God. We see it on, on Christian doctrine, on the Trinity. And a point that I would make there too, Nick, is that these are not only great Christian classical works, but if you were to go to a great books program, if you were to study literature, Augustine is considered one of the great literary authors as well. Mm -hmm. and, uh, in fact, uh, there, was a, there was a study done recently where, where Augustine's Confessions was voted by scholars as the greatest Christian book outside of the Bible. Mm. And also, we should mention, he did a lot of service for us on the problem of evil. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Augustine had a very engaging view of evil because in, in his time, people were asking the question that they asked today, where does evil come from? Uh, if God created a good world, why do we have evil in the world? Is it possible God created evil? Is God responsible for evil? And Augustine taking his philosophical tool chest, he was influenced by Platonic, Neoplatonic tradition. But Augustine argued that, that evil is not a thing, it's not a substance. It's the absence of goodness in the human will. It's kind of like a cavity. A cavity is not a thing. A cavity is the absence of enamel that should be in the tooth. Well, Augustine argued that evil is not a thing. It is the absence of goodness that is the result of the fallen condition of human beings. And so Augustine was taking on, I think, the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. It's the problem of mm -hmm. evil, pain, and suffering. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure me of your colleagues down at the reasons to believe can get a bit interested thinking about uh, Augustine's work the literal interpretation of Genesis which most of us today would hardly think is literal yeah that's right uh, you know Augustine wrote a lot of he wrote a lot about the doctrine of creation he talked about the creation days he wasn't he wasn't sure exactly 
what those days were, what the duration was. Uh, he said that they seemed to be more revelatory than literal 24-hour periods. He also wrote about creation ex nihilo that the triune God had called all contingent reality into existence from nothing. And um, he also wrote about the creation of time. And interestingly enough, Nick, I was reading both in the secular scientists Paul Davies and Alex, Alexander Vilenkin, who are two leading cosmologists, physicists, they both are amazed that Augustine affirmed the creation of time, which is consistent with the most cutting-edge science, that, that the world began with time, not in time. And so Augustine has a lot to say about creation. It's controversial. Some of the young earth creationists are not crazy about the idea that he didn't affirm uh, a calendar day, six consecutive 24-hour periods. But again, he, he was uh, amazingly insightful for a 5th century church father long before there was what we call the enterprise of science. Yeah, I understand part of the humor of what he has is that uh, sometimes people would go to him and ask a question, what was God doing before he created the universe? And he had two answers. One was his Carthaginian humor, where he would say to him, he was creating hell for people who ask questions like that. I mean, yes, yes. The second was response he gave that there was no before because God created time. Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly right. Uh, he, you know, there was the joke that that uh, what was doing what was God doing before He created the world? He was preparing hell for those who pry into mysteries. But his real response was that uh, we can't think of before the way we think of after because God created the world with time. And Augustine believed that God was an infinite, eternal, timeless being. It's something amusing, I think, that when you see skeptics today who think they're coming up with all these new arguments, and you look back to people like Augustine and Aquinas and others and say, no, Christianity was answering these arguments before these arguments ever showed up on the map. Yeah, that, that's, that's so important, uh, Nick. I think, I think unfortunately, uh, in, in fact, I would put it this way. I, I think the new atheism is not nearly as formidable as the old atheism. No. By the old atheism, I mean people like Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, other people of that era, I think the old atheists were more formidable because they had to they had to study Christianity. It was part of their education. So they knew people like Augustine, like Anselm, like Aquinas. Whereas the new atheists, uh, I don't think they, they have ever really taken historic Christianity seriously. They don't know the kind of firepower that exists in the church fathers in the Middle Ages, etc. Well, let's move on to something else. This is going to be kind of going out of a church father's time, but going into the Middle Ages still, and that's Anselm. And one of the biggest things he's remembered for is he came up with a very unique argument that whether you agree with it or disagree with it, most every philosopher seems to have something to say about this argument. 
Yes, exactly. Uh, and um, now we're moving away from the church fathers. So Irenaeus, Athanasius, and Augustine are part of what Christians call the the period of the church fathers. With Anselm, we move to the Middle Ages, and his dates are 1033 to 1109. Um, Anselm is, is born in Italy. He becomes a, a very significant church leader. In fact, he is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he lived in England, which at the time, uh, you know, England was a very important uh, country in terms of his own Catholic faith. Uh, later would become a Reformation uh, country in terms of uh, uh, the Protestant view. But Anselm is uh, a theologian, he is a philosopher, and as you mentioned, he develops an argument that I think's turned all of Christian theology, apologetics, and philosophy on its ear. He, he developed, he was in his, in his study, in his time of reflection, reading Psalm 14, uh, which says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So he's wrestling with this idea that there is something foolish, there's something incoherent about unbelief. And he develops an argument as God as a maximally perfect being, is maybe the way we would put it today, uh, a being than which none greater can be conceived is the language that he used. But it is later entitled the ontological argument that if you think and reflect about God's qualities and characteristics, that he's a being than which none greater can be conceived. He is a perfect being. And Anselm argues that as a perfect being, he must exist because if, if God does not exist as a perfect being, then you engage in a logical inconsistency. It would mean that you could conceive of a greater being than the greatest of possible beings. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that critique this argument. Um, e even during Anselm's time, Ganilon was a monk who critiqued it. Athanas uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas was critical of it, Immanuel Kant. But there are a lot of Christians today and through history, Descartes, uh, and even Alvin Plantica, even William Lane Craig have forms of the ontological argument that they consider valid and sound. And, and it's that very point that a thousand, almost a thousand years after Anselm developed this argument, many of the greatest people on the globe are still wrestling with it, critiquing it, affirming it, defending it. And, and that's an amazing thing that a, a Christian thinker would come up with a a, a really um, a really brand new way of thinking about the nature of God. I'm someone who's actually skeptical of an ontological argument as well, which I think is important to note that just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're going to jump up and immediately accept every argument that concludes Christianity is true or something of, of that sort. Yeah, I, I think that, I, I certainly think Anselm would, would encourage that. I, I think when you read uh, Anselm, he interacts with people who are critical of it. Ganilan is a monk who is critical of it. Um, I certainly don't think Christians should should accept views simply because they're part of the tradition or uh, the theological history. I I think there is a 
a valid and sound version of the ontological argument. But, but I think more than whether we accept it or are critical of it, I think this idea of, of using natural theology, uh, Anselm was kind of the father of the school of scholasticism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly important that, that non-Christians realize that Christianity is a thinking faith. Mm -hmm. And uh, we certainly see that in these brilliant minds. Another contribution Anselm made was his idea of why the God-man, where he formulated an argument on why God had to become a man. Yeah, that's his very important book entitled in Latin, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-man, or Why Has God Become Man? And he develops a, a defense of the incarnation, that, that God became man because human sin had offended God, and ultimately only God could bring forth a solution to that, to that offense. And I think that this is a very, very important book because it, it strikes at the very center of Christianity. I, I think when we talk about Christianity, you have to talk about the Trinity. You have to talk about the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity took a human nature and became man. So Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, a divine and human nature. And Anselm combines a discussion of the incarnation to develop a view of the atonement. Mm -hmm. And so this is a work of philosophy. It is a work of theology. Um, I consider it, I consider it, whether you agree with all of his arguments or not, this is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I, I can't help but recall the advice of my good friend, Dr. Tim McGrew, who's always encouraging me and nearly every other apologist out there, read old books. Yeah, it, you know, that's, uh, uh, I know Tim as well, and he is a, he is a, a very vibrant, uh, intellectual person. We've interviewed him on uh, my podcast, Straight Thinking. Uh, I'm reminded in your comment of, uh, of C.S. Lewis, who, who wrote an introduction mm -hmm. to Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, and Lewis talked about the need, you know, if you're going to read one modern book, then read two old books. I, I think that that is such an important point. And one of the things that I do in, in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers, is I introduce these books. Uh, I kind of give you a, a brief introduction to them. And then in the end, I encourage people, don't just read my book. Pick up On the Incarnation by Athanasius. Pick up Cur Deus Homo by Anselm. Pick up The Confessions by St. Augustine. Uh, these are some of the, you know, some of the most sophisticated writings in all of Western civilization. Yeah, we've still got five more to cover. I want to try and get as many as I can. So let's go to one that's definitely, definitely one of my favorites, as I'm sure you know. Thomas Aquinas. Yes, yeah, so now we've moved a, a little higher into the Middle Ages. Uh, Thomas is born in 1225 and he dies in 1274. He doesn't live a long life. 
He only lives 49 years. But as I, I mentioned uh, earlier, I think Thomas Aquinas may have been the brightest mind that Christendom has, has ever produced. Uh, he was born in a castle uh, in Italy, and he was trained very early on by the Catholic priests and monks, uh, took on the vocation of becoming a, uh, a priest and a scholar. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think his writings like uh, the Summa Theologica and the Summa Contra Gentilis are two of, the, two of the greatest theological, philosophical works ever. I call him the quintessential Catholic philosopher. Mm -hmm. I mean, wh whether you're Orthodox, whether you're Protestant, whether you're Roman Catholic, there's a lot in Thomas. Um, you may disagree with some of his Catholic views, but many great Protestant thinkers, uh, one of uh, my friends, uh, Norman Geisler, was a, was a Thomist. Mm -hmm. uh, another close friend of mine, Wynne Corsion, who mm -hmm. is a leading Christian thinker, is a Thomist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thomas casts Thomas casts a huge shadow in in Christian philosophy mm -hmm. and theology. I get amazed when I read people like Richard Dawkins and others who want to critique for five ways. And I'm not saying that there aren't some people out there who do good critiques for five ways, but you look at a lot of ones you see today on the internet, and I just look and just no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I'm puzzled and uh, disturbed when I read Dawkins and and he just kind of uh, you know just dismisses the the five ways or the five proofs of Thomas Aquinas. I mean, you've got some really great defenders of Thomism today. Ed Fazer is a mm -hmm. Roman Catholic mm -hmm. philosopher here in Southern California. I, I'm amazed that again the new atheists they've not taken. Uh, the greatest Christian thinkers seriously, I, I, I think because they, they, ne they have never been required to do that. And uh, so often they never really engage in what I think are the most formidable arguments for God's existence and for the truth of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Something we have to recognize that Aquinas did also was he took a set of ideas that had kind of recently been rediscovered those of Aristotle, and a lot of the people in the church at the time were thinking, there's no way we can really use these in the service of Christianity. But Aquinas said, you know, Aristotle did get some things wrong, but he got some things right, too. Let's see what we can do with this. That's very important. Um, I would say one of Thomas's greatest, most significant contributions is his Christian Aristotelian synthesis. I mean, uh, right at the time of uh, Thomas, Aristotle and Aristotle's writings were becoming well known in Europe again. And the Muslim scholars, Averroes, for example, took, took Aristotle and tried to create an Arabic Aristotelian synthesis. Uh, Thomas responded and said that, uh, you know, the, some of the Greeks, particularly Aristotle, they get things right. Uh, they are very, very careful in their views of metaphysics and epistemology and things of that nature. So Thomas develops in the Summa Theologica his view of, 
of presenting Christianity in Aristotelian categories and definitions. Now, there are times where he disagrees with Aristotle. Aristotle thought the universe was eternal. Thomas didn't believe that. Um, Aristotle, uh, for example, really didn't have a fundamental view of human sinfulness. So Thomas is able to choose the very positive things that Aristotle affirmed and presented a, a Christian world and life view utilizing the remarkable insights of, of Aristotle. And, uh, you know, whether you agree with all of it or not, whether you agree with all of Thomas's arguments or not, this is, again, a masterful presentation of classical Greek philosophy uh, within the context of the Christian world and life view. And I think Aristotle also didn't believe in life after death, and Aquinas definitely did. That's right. Uh, and, and again, a lot of times I think people unfairly say that Thomas baptized Aristotle's God. Uh, Thomas was deeply influenced by Scripture. In fact, that's what he always saw himself as a teacher of Scripture. And I think he was very skilled in, in accepting things that Aristotle affirmed that were consistent with Christianity, rejecting other things and explaining why. And if anything... I think the incredible thing about the Summa Theologica, which is about two million words long, by the mm. way, it's so long because I think Thomas considers almost exhaustively all of the possible uh, challenges and difficulties with his view and then systematically critiques them. So, you know, unfortunately, the, the new atheists don't know Thomas and they don't know his arguments and they're worse because of that. Mm. When you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, we get Dr. Kenneth Samples talking about his podcast for Christian thinkers. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about sexual ethic. It's going to be an hour-long show. I've got Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse of the Roof Institute. It's going to be on our show. We're talking about her book, The Sexual State, about how divorce and cohabitation and so many other things have led to a breakdown, all because of a sexual revolution. But let's get back to Ken Sampar's and Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, Aquinas, when you go through, it almost seems tedious at times, going through the Summa Theologica, because it's like every single thing is covered in depth. You, I, I kind of wonder if he was similar with students and saying, okay, class, I want you to come up with the best objections you can to my arguments. And he lays out each and every one, which goes back to what I said again, that 
we Christians, we were answering arguments before skeptics were even making the arguments. Yeah, that's uh, that's so true. Thomas would uh, almost in a in a in a universal way, an exhaustive way, would would consider and reflect upon possible challenges to his arguments. And again, this really shows you that that Christians really cared about truth. They cared about argumentation. They cared about reason. I mean, one of the reasons why I chose these nine thinkers is I think to some degree all of them represent the golden rule of apologetics. They treat other views, other competing alternative views with fairness, with carefulness, with respect. And what makes Thomas very challenging to read is that he is tedious. He's systematic. I might say he's not quite as enjoyable and personable as St. Augustine, but in terms of logical and philosophical rigor, he's second to none. When my wife and I are out in public, and we're watching especially kids, we have going on between us what we call our ADAR, as it were, where we can look at a kid and think, yeah, I think that kid's probably on the Asperger spectrum somewhere, just like I am and your boss Hugh Ross is, he's been on the show to talk about it before. Looking at, at Thomas Aquinas' writings and knowing some about his life, I often think he was on the spectrum as well. There's a story about him being at a party and everyone around him is talking and carrying on and anything like that. And he's sitting there for a while. He's just reflecting, minding his own business, not seeming to know what war he's in. All of a sudden, he slams his fist down on the table and says, and that was set over manichees. And everyone yeah, stops. I, I, I think that there's really something to what you're saying. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, T Thomas was a, a very big man, a large man. He was not terribly charismatic. He was an introvert. Um, you know, he didn't pick up on all the social tips of, of people's intention. But he was a brilliant thinker, and I think part of that, part of that systematization, part of that analysis, maybe was part of his his temperament. But he was also a very humble for for somebody who who scored so high on the IQ. He was a very humble person, and uh, he's certainly one of my favorites. I, I you just whether you're a Catholic or not. You cannot miss Thomas Aquinas. And he had his own bullies growing up. He was known as the dumb ox by his classmates. That's right. I mean, we today we talk about kids being bullied. We talk about kids being teased. You know, Thomas was criticized as the, the dumb ox, but one of, one of his teachers says when he speaks, the whole world will listen to him. So let's go on to another thinker who, well, the whole world did listen to him. And that would be, this could be the first one that's going to be a major controversial figure to some people as a great Christian thinker. Martin Luther. I mean, I got to wonder point this one in. How is, how are my Catholic and Orthodox friends going to react to Martin Luther being in here? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking the question. Um, you know, Luther's dates are 1483 to 1546, so now we've moved out of the Middle Ages. Luther is born right as the Middle Ages are coming to an end, and he is a, he is a Roman Catholic. Uh, you know, his parents own a, 
a, a silver mine and they have some money so they want to give their son Martin a really fine education he has a dramatic event in his life he's caught in a thunderstorm and if you've ever been around thunder and lightning you know how horrific and terrible it can it can be how frightening mm. it is well he's caught in a thunderstorm and he cries out as a catholic saint anne save me i'll become a priest uh saint anne by the way according to catholic tradition was the mother of the virgin mary uh, well luther follows up on his promise and joins the augustinian order and becomes a catholic monk and a catholic priest your question of how will Catholics and Orthodox relate to Luther? Well, I, I think in some ways the, the book will will challenge all of the branches of Christendom. I mean, Protestants might might look at Thomas Aquinas and say, "Well, he sounds very Catholic," or Protestants may look at Athanasius and say, "You know, he seems very Egyptian and Oriental in his kind of views of Christianity." What, what I like to argue, Nick, is that I think all of these thinkers, whether they're, whether they're closer to orthodoxy, whether they're closer to Catholicism or Protestantism, all of them represent what I would call a, a mere Christianity, a historic Christianity. Mm -hmm. And Luther is a controversial figure. I mean, he challenges the Catholic thought of his time, and through his experiences through his theological explorations he births a brand new branch of Christendom called Protestantism so Luther is controversial but so is Augustine I mean Augustine is not well liked in in Eastern Orthodoxy mm -hmm. so in some ways this is a group of individuals that some t some branches will like more other branches will like less something that amazed me when I read it in your book is that you said Aside from Jesus Christ, Martin Luther could be the most written about individual in history. Yeah, I've come across a number of historians who have said that, that again, of all of the books written about individuals, and of course, no surprise that the number one person written about in Western civilization, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus's coming into the world changed history, you know, uh, B.C. A.D. But there, there are historians who say that the most influential event in the history of Europe was the Protestant Reformation, mm -hmm. and that that Luther's ideas, uh, you know, the Gutenberg press was invented right before the time of the Reformation. And it was able to, Luther was able to take advantage of technology and see that his tracks and his writings spread all over Europe. So yeah, there are people who argue that the most influential event in the history of Europe, including the Roman Empire and everything that's gone on, was the Protestant Reformation. And Luther may be the second most written about man in Western civilization. That is extraordinary. Now, Luther, he also never really set out to do anything like this. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, you know, so Luther in 1517, he uh, is a monk. He is part of the Augustinian order. Uh, he is reflecting on on 
how God can transform his life, and and he has a lot of challenges. He he is he's uncomfortable. Um, you know, uh, I remember I remember C.S. Lewis saying, "You don't know how bad you are until you try really hard to be good." Well, when Luther is in the monastery, sometimes he'll spend hours in confession. I remember going to confession. Luther would sometimes spend hours in there searching his mind. Have I confessed all of my sins? Have I repented properly? Have I done, have I followed all of the Catholic teaching that will ensure that I will be saved? And he came across a teacher in the church uh, who was talking about indulgences. And uh, he thought that he thought the practice of indulgences was kind of like selling salvation. The, the church was trying to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral. And uh, a man named Johann Tetzel came into Germany and began talking about if you give money to support the church, the souls of people in purgatory will, will be released into heaven. Well, Luther protested this. He, he wrote his theses on the chapel door, the church door in, in Wittenberg, uh, his, his 95 theses. And, and this was not initially his desire to, to fragment Catholicism or to, to, to divide historic Christianity. This was a theological debate and protest about some of the teachings that he thought were, were amiss and that were not consistent with Scripture. And so, yeah, Luther is a controversial figure, but sometimes I don't think that Catholics and Orthodox read him enough and try to understand his particular context, just like I think Protestants often don't read the early church fathers or Catholic or Orthodox thinkers enough. Yeah, I think he even went on to identify John Tetzler as still a Christian. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think that uh, I think what Luther wanted was reform. He thought that the medieval Catholic Church had lost its way, that that grace, faith, and works had been kind of blended and mixed. And and Luther through his through his studies, in fact Johann uh, a man named Staupitz, who was his counselor and advisor, his father confessor, encouraged Luther to read scripture. And it was through reading the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, that Luther thought he had rediscovered the doctrine of justification by faith, that you're not saved by a mixture of grace, faith, and works, but you're saved solely by grace through faith. And that faith gives fruit of, of its genuine authenticity which are works of loving obedience. And so, uh, you know, I, I think Luther's struggle, I think his challenge is something I wish all leaders of Christendom, I, I, I wish the patriarchs of orthodoxy, the, the popes of cardinals of Catholicism, I wish every Christian would appreciate Luther's struggle. How do I find forgiveness? I'm a sinner. How do I find true forgiveness before God? And one of the things that I quote in the chapter on, on Luther, Nick, is I quote Pope Benedict XVI. This is Joseph Ratzinger. This is the Pope Emeritus who retired a few years ago before Pope Francis. Well, Benedict XVI, uh, before he was Pope, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, he was German. And 
when he was pope, he went to the churches in Germany, and I quote part of his speech. He says that Luther's question about where do I stand with God should be all of our questions. And so I think whether you agree with him or not, and there are areas of Luther, like all of the nine thinkers, that there are many areas I agree with them, some I disagree with them, but whether you agree with Luther or not, I think this question is, how am I saved before God? Am I saved by grace through faith? What is that specific relationship? And so I, I think Luther is, again, like Thomas Aquinas, like him mm -hmm. or not, you can't miss him. And I think even a lot of Catholic thinkers today, while they don't agree with Parson, they probably say, you yeah, know, Luther was right on some points because there was a lot going wrong with the Catholic Church at the time. I, I think that there are Catholics who, who affirm that. I, I've heard Peter Kreef say that, who is a Catholic philosopher and Christian apologist. Mm -hmm. I think there have been Catholic historians who appreciate Luther's kind of crisis of conscience. And, you know, uh, whether, whether you agree with his decision uh, to birth a branch of Protestantism or not, I think Luther was sincere. I think that he was a theological genius. I think his writings, uh, you could spend probably the rest of your life reading his writings. So, yeah, I think that he is uh, one of the, the most important persons in the history of Christendom. Let's go on to the next person, then, who's also part of the Reformation, and this one a lot of Protestant Christians might not care for, and I can understand this thing as I'm very much not a Calvinist, and that puts you on the opposite because I understand you're very much one, and that would be John Calvin. Yeah, Calvin's dates are 1509 to 1564, so Calvin is a second-generation reformer. He's actually 26 years younger than Luther. So the Reformation takes place over several decades, and while Luther is the great pathfinder, the great charismatic personality, that the strength of the will to kind of birth a, a Protestant vision of Christianity, I think Calvin is, is very different. He's, he's quiet. He's an introvert. Uh, he's almost shy, at times unsociable, uh, but he is the great systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. He thinks in systematic terms. He takes Luther's idea of Scripture as the supreme authority, sola scriptura, the doctrines of sola gratia, salvation by grace, justification by grace, and he develops them into a systematic Protestant theological uh, presentation. Calvin is... Calvin is, in my opinion, probably the most controversial figure in all of church history. And I mean, that's an amazing thing because there have been many controversial thinkers in Christian history. But to some degree, Nick, I, I think that part of that controversy is I think Calvin is sometimes misunderstood. He does certainly have a very robust view of predestination and election. He believes that God does choose the elect and pass over the reprobate. But you know, Nick, Calvin's view of predestination is not that different from Luther's, not that different from Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine. And so in, in some respects, I think Calvin, you know, they, people kind of think he tried to invent predestination, you know, in a laboratory in G Geneva. But in many ways, Calvin is a biblical scholar. That, that's what he emphasizes. 
he writes tremendous commentaries. He writes a commentary on every book of the New Testament but the book of Revelation, of which he said, I don't understand it. Imagine that. Imagine a biblical scholar today saying he doesn't understand the book of Revelation. Yeah. Calvin wrote many commentaries on the Old Testament, and he viewed himself as an exegete. He viewed himself as a biblical scholar, not as a philosopher. And I remember when I was in Bible college, someone decided to go through some of his commentaries for a class, and they said some of that really astounded him so much about Calvin's commentaries was how much he talked about free wearing there. Well, you know, the the basic view of of the Reformed tradition and 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 by the way I should mention that that Calvin's thought is is unique in the sense that it runs through various denominations. Reformed theology is different than Lutheranism or Catholicism in the sense that you know, you, you can be Reformed or Presbyterian and, and embrace a basic Calvinism. Uh, you, c- you can be uh, a Presbyterian. You can uh, be an Anglican. Uh, you can be a Congregationalist. You can be a Baptist. So Reformed theology runs through them. But I would point out that Calvin believed in what he would have called a compatibilism, that somehow in God's working with human beings, that God is sovereign, and yet human beings are genuinely and authentically responsible for the actions that they they mm-hmm. make. So again, and, and this is a point I, I keep coming back to, but I think it's important. Whether you agree with Calvin, whether whether whatever your thoughts are about the popular expression of Calvinism, the Calvinism-Arminianism debate, Calvin is one of the, the greatest biblical scholars, and he makes contributions in other areas. I mean, uh, Calvin talks about, for example, uh, that we all have a sense of the divine, what, what he calls in Latin the sensus divinitatis, that, that we all have an awareness of, of God's existence, and that that awareness or that sense is heightened in light of general revelation. Calvin, by the way, was also a humanist. Now, I don't mean I don't mean a secular skeptic. He was a student of classical Roman history and thought, and even published works on some of the uh, uh, some of the Roman authors. So Calvin is a very very broad and and very influential and his work does bear on philosophy and theology as much as he saw himself really as a student of the Bible Mm -hmm. yeah like you said he wrote commentaries on nearly everything it's a shame that so much of what we see from when we talk about Calvin days just Calvinism versus Arminianism that's as important that is that's really missing a lot isn't it I I really do you know um I, I don't really enjoy, you know, debating the five points of Calvinism, uh, even though I I have a long history of being part of a Reformed tradition. Um, I I enjoy the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, the Resurrection, and I I think sometimes when people think of Calvin solely in terms of the five points of Calvinism, the 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 so-called tulip, I think in some ways they they miss. Calvin's deep commitment to the great truths of the Protestant Reformation. They miss his deep commitment to the Bible. And I know many people today 
who are very thoughtful Christian theologians and philosophers who say you could pick up a commentary by Calvin and it's one of the best commentaries you might ever mm -hmm. read. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solar Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nicky is and all that he does is a desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years. And I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. So let's take a moment at this point to remind everyone that you're listening to Deeper Waters Podcasts. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeing to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics here, and we need your help for that. Please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you click on that link, you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation. You get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made the donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks in the library. One that I've written, The Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. And some I've co-written, Defining Inerrancy, Contextualizing Inerrancy, God and Natural Disasters, Groundlets, Christian Answers to Rich Generations Questions. And if you can't do any of these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast. Guys, I really like to see them here. And Dr. Samples, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people connect to? Yeah, sure do. I, I, I work for the science, faith, think tank, and apologetic organization called Reasons to Believe. We have a, we have a website at reasons.org where we just have a ton of material on science, faith issues, theology, some of my apologetic writings. So thank you, Nick. I, I hope people will consider supporting Reasons to Believe. Now, something that we should probably say some about is that uh, Calvin gets a bad rap also because of what happened with microservitus. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Michael Servetus was a, a man who challenged historic Christianity. He was, uh, he was a schismatic. He was, he was heretical in his theology. He rejected the Trinity, who rejected the deity of Christ. And Servetus knew of Calvin and, and knew that Calvin was a very significant Protestant leader in Geneva. Um, Servetus was, was popular and famous, and, and even the Catholics were very well aware of Michael Servetus's challenges to uh, historic Christianity. Well, Servetus came to Geneva and wanted to challenge uh, Calvin on these various issues, and Calvin told him, don't come. Because if you come, you will be you'll be arrested. Because Nick, during the time of the Middle Ages and then into the era of the Reformation, 
Christians thought that Europe was a Christian civilization, and they thought that if you challenged historic Christianity, it was almost like committing treason because you were undermining the very fabric of Christian civilization, and you were potentially endangering the destiny of people's mm -hmm. souls. And so you could be arrested, you could be tried, and you could be executed for a denial of Christianity. Now, now, there are, of course, people living today who abhor that. They think, how could Christians ever give consideration to that? But that was the views of the time. Servetus came to Geneva. Uh, the authorities there in Geneva had him arrested and tried. Calvin didn't arrest him. Calvin didn't execute him. In fact, when Servetus was tried and found guilty and worthy of, of uh, execution, uh, Calvin asked that he not be burned at the stake uh, because he thought that that would be too painful and horrific. But many people think that Calvin was involved in that, and whether, whether rightly or wrongly, Calvin's reputation has been tarnished because people think that he was directly involved. And I would say that uh, Roman Catholics practiced this, Protestants practiced this. Again, they thought they lived in a Christian civilization and heresy was not just a private belief, it was an attack on Christian civilization. And the equivalent of, I guess, what we would call the Cold War in the 20th century as an act of treason. Mm -hmm. So. Calvin gets a lot of criticism for this, as does Luther in a similar area uh, dealing with other issues of the time. Mm -hmm. So let's move on to another great thinker then, Blaise Pascal. And he also lived a very short life, and he was a genius in every sense of war. I even remember the time about he got in trouble, and he was sent to his room in the world, and he invented a form of calculus while he was there. What, what kid doesn't do that? <laughs> yeah, uh, Pascal's dates are 1623 to 1662, so there's a very short life, only 39 years. He is a Frenchman, and his father works for the French government. His father is the treasurer for, for the French government, and uh, Pascal is just a kid, and he is making contribution in the field of mathematics. Um, Pascal develops probability, early parts of probability theory. He, uh, as a young man, creates a calculating machine. He thought, well, if a clock can count the hours, I should be able to create a machine that can calculate sums. And this calculating machine that he created is in the minds of many people who write about technology the first step toward a computer. So, so this guy is a mathematician, he's a physicist, uh, he is a logician, uh, he is an inventor, uh, and he really is a renaissance man. Some people have called him the first modern man. Um, and again, I like to bring him up because most people only know about his wager. Most skeptics are kind of critical of his wager, but they don't know the kind of uh, scientific contributions, philosophical contributions, apologetic contributions. Um, Pascal is is just an amazing individual and intellect. And 
He also was a deeply spiritual man, and we only found out about a lot of this after he died. That's exactly right. Um, the story is that as a young man, he's, he kind of grows up in a nominal Catholic family. He accepts his Catholicism, but he's not deeply passionate about it. He's, he's more into science. Um, in fact, uh, there's a story that he once met Descartes and actually corrected Descartes. And Descartes wasn't very happy that a young, a young guy was correcting him about philosophy. But the story is that uh, Pascal is crossing the, the, the Seine River there in, in France. And he has an extraordinary spiritual experience. He has some kind of visionary experience where he encounters Jesus Christ. And nobody really knew about this. Uh, he didn't talk a lot about it, but he wrote out uh, a, a, a description of it called The Night of Fire that is included in, in a book that he wrote called The Pensees, which in French means Thoughts or Reflections, which really wasn't a full book. It was merely kind of his notes and outlines. He planned to turn it all into kind of a masterful apologetic book, but he died at 39 of stomach cancer. But when he wrote about this, he had this description of the night of fire, this visionary encounter with God, and he had it sewn into his clothing, and people didn't know about it until he died where they discovered this. Mm -hmm. And so this, this religious experience turned his whole world upside down. He began writing more in the area of theology, began thinking more about philosophy, more about Christian apologetics. Uh, he's one of the founding fathers of science in the, in the area of physics. And uh, I like to bring him up because a lot of skeptical people today who like science, they don't know much about Pascal. Yeah, and it is a shame that all he's usually remembered for is his wage or even then, that's badly misunderstood because people give the impression you're saying, eh, just be a Christian, what have you got to lose? Yeah, you're you're right there. Um, you know, the the wager is, I think, often misunderstood. Pascal never intended the wager as a standalone argument. He never intended it to be divorced from other Christian arguments and apologetic reasoning and the presentation of of Christian theology. He knew a lot of skeptical people because he was a scientist, and in and in the 18th century France. There were Catholics and there were atheists, and then there was kind of a middle group of people who were skeptical and didn't didn't have a clue, and they decided, I'm not going to bother with it. Why, why should I? You can't know what's going to happen after death. You can't really answer all of these deep philosophical, theological questions, so why bother? So what Pascal did is he came up with an argument, a form of reasoning, if you will, called the wager where he said, look, let's, let's take a cost-benefit analysis. How, how could you possibly benefit by believing that there's a God? How, how would believing possibly be to your advantage in the next life? And then he looks at not believing. What, what are the possible advantages now and, and disadvantages? And he ultimately comes up with an argument that he says, look, if if God does exist and Jesus is the Son of God and you affirm those truths, you will win the jackpot, if you will. You will win ultimately. Uh, but if you disbelieve, you stand to 
be condemned by God, to suffer the wrath of God. And so uh, this, I think, is kind of a a way in which we often think about our future. You know, what are the benefits and disbenefits if I choose this vocation? Or if I decide to move to this part of the country, what are the benefits, disbenefits? How about the investment of my money? I think Pascal meant this not as an argument, as a standalone, as any kind of certainty. I think he meant it to try to awaken mm-hmm. people, to say, look, you, you really have Uh, it really is important for you to give consideration about the possible options that may await you after death. And I think that's the way the wager was to function. It was kind of a a pre-evangelism, a shot across the bow to get people to wake up and say, hey, maybe I better take these things seriously and try to reason through the arguments. I think it was, um, like some of that was given for people who were, say, sitting on the fence and didn't really know because yeah. reason, well, you know, there could be something yes. there, it could not be. I don't know if I should take the risk. And at the same time, he's also not encouraging us, to say, fake religion, as if you're going to fool God or anything. But he does say, and let's make there is some truth to the whole idea of fake it until you make it. Yes, you know, Pascal talks a lot about. Um, he talks a lot about the heart. I mean, you know, it's interesting with a lot of these thinkers, even though they're very cerebral, they're very intellectual, they're, Pascal has a, a real heart side to him that that our faith is, is not just facts, reasons, and evidence. It involves all of those critical things, but it also involves our our fundamental commitments, our 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 deepest areas of trust in our life. And I think that Pascal said to some of his skeptical friends, he said, look, if you don't have faith, if this is something you can't do, what if you went to church? What if you actually opened the Bible and began to read it? What if you asked God, God, are you real? Are you really there? And Pascal thought that if you opened your heart and you began to try to practice the things that religious people did, you may discover that there is a reality behind all of that. And uh, I think that that's very, very powerful. I mean, this is a guy who made uh, contribution to logic, contribution to physics, contribution to mathematics, but he also wrote this remarkable book, The Pensees, where it's a work of philosophy, it's a work of theology, it's a work of psychology. He talks a lot about the human condition, our fallen, our broken condition. He talks about the Christian worldview that says human beings are this enigmatic union of greatness and wretchedness. Boy, I, I'll tell you, I'm as excited when I read the Pensees as I am when I read the Confessions. And so few Christians know about Pascal, know mm-hmm. about the Pensees, know about his extraordinary sto- story. That's why, Nick, again, I think the best way to introduce church history and historical theology is by biography, where you introduce people to these amazing personalities and their extraordinary lives. Well, let's talk about someone that is quite likely the law of the audience does know, even ones that don't consider themselves serious intellectuals at most. I think most Christians in the pews today would know more about this figure than most any of the others on the list. C.S. Lewis. 
Yes, I think you're right. Uh, C.S. Lewis's dates are 1898 to 1963. In fact, one interesting point is that C.S. Lewis dies the very same day, possibly the very same hour that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Lewis is born into an Irish family. A lot of people think he's a British author, but really he's born in Ireland. Um, he is baptized into the Church of Ireland. His mother is, his mom and dad are Christians, but his mom dies when he's nine years old. His father is very torn up by the death of his mother and sends C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, he's called Jack by his family and friends, sends Jack and his older brother Warren or Warney Lewis off to a boarding school. And Lewis feels really like his whole world has been taken away. He's lost his mom. His dad doesn't seem to care for him. One of the men that mentors him, a man named Kurt Patrick, he calls him the Great Knox, is a former Presbyterian who's become an atheist. And he kind of drills in skepticism to Lewis, and Lewis loses his faith and uh, uh, embraces uh, atheism. Well, Lewis becomes a soldier in the First World War. Uh, Lewis becomes an Oxford Don and tutor. When he's at Oxford, he encounters some Christians who are there, men named J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, a number of other Christian thinkers who are part of a group that will become known as the Inklings. And it's some of the Inklings that convince Lewis that Christianity is the true myth. Lewis spent his life studying mythology, and Tolkien and others, a man named Dyson and others, convince him that Christianity is the myth that actually took place within time and space. And so I think Lewis is uh, one of the most important authors and Christian thinkers of the 20th century. And probably of all of the nine thinkers I discover, I think that I cover in my book, I think you're right. Most people know something about C.S. Lewis. And one of the things they probably know most about him is his series of books, three of which have been turned to major motion pictures for Chronicles of Narnia. And I have a member, my wife and I saw the third one together, Voyage of Bon Treader, and that final scene on the island with Lucy and Edward when was talking to Aslan, and have a conversation we're never going to get to go back to Narnia again, and how Aslan says, and that great line that's in the books, and I understand that Lewis's grandson fought tooth and nail to get this line where he says, My child, in your world, I am known by another name. Perhaps the reason you came here is that you, so that you can know me better there. Yeah, you know, what, what's what's really interesting, uh, Nick, is that Owen Barfield, who was uh, one of the Inklings, who was a close friend of C.S. Lewis, Barfield said there were really three C.S. Lewis's. There was, first of all, the great author of the Chronicles of Narnia, these fantasy children's stories that have sold more than a hundred million copies. Uh, but Barfield said there was a second C.S. Lewis, the Anglican lay theologian who wrote books on theology and Christian apologetics. And then there was a third Lewis, and that is the Lewis who was a literary scholar of uh, medieval and Renaissance uh, literature at Oxford. And so Lewis becomes, I think, in my opinion, the most influential Christian 
apologist of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. He becomes one of the greatest writers in the history of uh, Christian thought, British. Uh, in fact, uh, he's acknowledged uh, in uh, England as one of the one of the great writers. So yeah, this is an individual who who has a great story and an individual who has left extraordinary books, and I included him. Even though he's born at the end of the 19th century and lives into the 20th century, I include him as a classical Christian thinker because he loved the classical period. He loved ancient and medieval history, uh, and he is the person who taught me to read old books. And in fact, Nick, uh, a connection that I have personally, Mere Christianity was the very first Christian book that I ever read as a 20-year-old. And it had a real influence on my formative early years of, of developing as a Christian. I think so many conversion stories I've heard have mere Christianity mentioned in them. Many times have you asked, what's one book you would recommend someone read outside of the Bible to understand Christianity? A lot of people will say mere Christianity. Yeah, you know, in, in fact, the there was a group of InterVarsity scholars who picked 64 of the greatest books outside of the Bible in church history, and they voted on them in, in areas of philosophy, apologetics, uh, poetry, uh, biography, etc. And uh, the final four books, uh, the last two came out to be Confessions by Augustine and Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, Lewis's book was voted the most important Christian book of the 20th century. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, I mentioned, sold over 100 million copies. And like you, I've watched these movies. Uh, uh, Nick, I think if C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien were alive today, they would be billionaires. Because J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter series, yeah. is... And so they became institutions, if you will, of uh, fantasy literature and Christian thought. And J.K. Rowling herself has been greatly influenced by Lewis. She says she can't be in the same room as a Narnia book without reading it. And I think that's why she has seven books in her series. I think that's important to, to acknowledge that, uh, that Rowling recognizes the deep influence that uh, Lewis and Tolkien have had in that area. Yeah, that's right on. And if anyone wants to hear more about <clears throat> J.K. Rowling, I recommend you go back to our archives and look for two interviews I've done with John Granger, otherwise known as Hogwarts Professor, mm. on Christianity and Harry Potter. It's very eye-opening. Very interesting. Yeah. And... Something I've heard is there was even a show on Unbelievable discussing a Christian atheist discussing the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, when atheist was just, she talked about how she was so stunned because she loved the Chronicles of Narnia when she was growing up. And later on, found out, this is about God. I never even noticed it. <laughs> well, you know that's that's so interesting to me, Nick, because I know a lot of people who are Christian who like Lewis, but sometimes there are people who know him only for his fictional writings, for his fantasy writings, for the Chronicles mm -hmm. of Narnia. And sometimes I say, well, have you read Mere Christianity or Miracles or some of his, his uh, other writings? And they're like, no, I didn't know that side of Lewis. Again, I, that takes me back to what Barfield said. Uh, Lewis 
there were three different sides of Lewis. And as Tolkien once said to one of Lewis's students, you'll never get to the bottom of Mr. C.S. Lewis. Something else incredible about C.S. Lewis is he tried to answer every single letter he got personally. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I read on the on the fiftieth anniversary of Lewis's death. So this is twenty thirteen. Uh, Alistair McGrath, a, another Christian thinker, an apologist, scientist, wrote a biography about Lewis, and uh, he said that that Lewis wrote some ten to twelve thousand letters to, to to people who had corresponded with him, and and Lewis didn't didn't type or didn't want to type because he thought that would take your writing style away. So his brother Warney would type out these answers. And Lewis said, look, if you write a book and if people read it and they correspond with you, you have a responsibility. And you know, that's influenced me. I I have uh, written or co-written or contributed to 12 books. And I take a lot more seriously when somebody contacts me with something that they say about my book. I feel like, wow, I have a responsibility, but mm -hmm. there is books filled with just C.S. Lewis's letters of correspondence. Mm -hmm. he, was, uh, he was amazingly disciplined in interacting with people. And one of those letters of correspondence led to a very unusual relationship with him because that's how he got married very late in life. That's right. Uh, Lewis was a bachelor for most of his life, uh, but uh, in the 1950s, he encountered a, an American woman, Joy Davidman, uh, and she was an author. She was a former communist, a former Marxist. Uh, they struck up relationship. Uh, first, it was kind of a marriage of convenience so that Joy could stay in the United Kingdom or Great Britain. But then later, the relationship developed into a Christian marriage. Uh, she unfortunately developed cancer very early on in the marriage. She died. And uh, Lewis wrote a book about his grief called A Grief Observed. Initially, he didn't put his own name on it. But that book is, it'll blow your mind. He talks about grief. He talks about losing people you love. I think if you're going to think about the problem of pain and suffering and evil, you need to read the problem of pain and a grief to observe side by side. It kind of gives you two, two critical points in the problem of suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I my favorite book of his, actually, I, I kind of turned down to two. One of them is the screw tape letters, which it really does go so well into what the nature of temptation is. And then The Great Divorce, which really gets a lot into the nature of what Ford called The After Death. Yeah, those books are, are really amazing. Uh, it was the Screw Letters, by the way, that first made Lewis uh, famous as a celebrity. And American authors really liked it because they knew that he believed in the supernatural, became a bestseller. He dedicated it to his friend J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Divorce as well is a masterful uh, presentation of, of, of theology, of life after death, the issue of hell. Uh, Lewis wrote a, somewhere around 30 books. And my, my favorite book, of course, is Mere Christianity. But he has so many books that are so good th that really, really challenge Christians to think deeply about their faith. 
well, I think we need to start wrapping things up here, Vin. Um, what's your main hope for this book? Well, I, I, I want to say thank you for having me on, Nick. I really, I really appreciate mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, what I, what I really hope is that people will read my book and be introduced to some church history and historical theology. And I hope what will pull them in is these individuals, these biographies, these fascinating people with, with their really interesting uh, life and thought. But I, I hope take a step further. I hope mm -hmm. not just reading Ken Samples, but I think more than reading my book is maybe you'll decide that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to step out. I'm going to take a leap of faith. I'm going to read the Confessions by Augustine, or I'm going to read the On the Incarnation by Athanasius, or I'm going to read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, or maybe I'll really be ambitious. Maybe I'll crack open the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. I want Christian people, particularly my evangelical Protestant friends, to realize that church history also belongs to them, that it is the story of the faith, and that there are these remarkable people, and even though they have died and gone on to be with the Lord, their books still speak to us today. They're mentors, they're friends, uh, they're encouragers in the faith. They're imperfect people like me. All of them were broken. All of them had challenges in their life. But that's what I hope for this book. I hope that it will encourage uh, Christians and particularly evangelicals to to look a little deeper at our, our history and uh, the extraordinary individuals that God has used in his church. The book is, I think, 1895 on hard on paperback right now and 999 on Kindle as of the time of this recording. Classic Christian thinkers. Um, do you have a blog, website, and email where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? I sure do. Uh, I write a blog called Reflections. It's uh, you can You can connect it by reflections at WordPress by Ken. Um, and we have a website at Reasons to Believe where there is a lot of uh, great articles and materials about science faith issues. That's reasons.org. And uh, again, Nick, thank you for having me on. Thank you for taking an interest in this topic. And I want to tell you that I appreciate your ministry. I appreciate your dedication. Uh, I know uh, one of your relatives, Mike Lacona, who mm. I have a high view of. And so uh, keep up the good work and thank you for your generosity of interviewing mm. me. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave today? Yeah, I, 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 I want to say that, uh, you know, you know, the Lord has a, has a great way of of reaching into our lives and and he's done throughout that throughout church history uh all the way back to Irenaeus all the way down to to C.S. Lewis and when we use our mind to love God God will utilize it in open doors so that we can share our faith and talk to people who don't know him so I hope they'll read my book and I hope it'll motivate them in their Christian life and in the Christian way. Dr. Thank you for coming on and hope we'll see you back here again sometime. My pleasure, Nick. God bless you. And I can mind when that next week we're going to have Jennifer Roback Morrison talking about her book for Sexual State. For now, I'm Nick Peters and I'm signing off.